Ministries, Lift Health for All is a podcast from the Center for Health Equity Transformation, gathering voices in research and communities around Chicago. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Jose Lopez, a prominent community leader and executive director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center in Chicago, which he co-founded in 1973. He has written extensively on the political and social reality of Puerto Ricans in the United States, while serving as an adjunct instructor at Northeastern Illinois University, Columbia College, and the University of Illinois at Chicago. We also have Maggie Nava, longtime community advocate from our center for health equity transformation, who currently serves as site director for the Chicago Cancer Health Equity Collaborative. Maggie will be leading our conversation with Jose Lopez. Welcome Maggie and Señor Lopez to the Skinny Trees podcast. Okay, so uh, gracias por estar aquí con nosotros, Señor. It's an honor to have you here. Um, the first question that we have for you is, how did Humboldt Park come to be the Puerto Rican neighborhood of Chicago? Gracias por la invitación. Humboldt Park became a Puerto Rican community probably around the latter part of the 40s and early 50s. Puerto Ricans began to migrate to Chicago in the mid-40s. And just as a side note, which I should at least tell you that um, this year, actually a few days ago on January 6th, we celebrated the 25 years of the installation of those flags, the steel flags, which, by the way, are the world's largest steel flags, erected in, uh, in that community on Division Street between Artesian and Mozart. And um, obviously, it speaks to the early migration of Puerto Ricans to the city. The first group of Puerto Ricans who came here came to work in the steel mills. So that's why those flags are made out of steel. The second sort of wave of Puerto Ricans in the 1950s came to work in the pipeline industry, and um, those flags are made out of pipelines. And another wave of Puerto Rican migrants who came here came to work in the welding industry, and those pipelines are welded together. So I, I say this because Puerto Ricans came to work primarily in the industries of Chicago. They were extremely important at that time. There was also another group of Puerto Rican, particularly women who would come in uh, to work in as laborers that were hired in some of the factories in the, in the area. But Humble Park, like many of Chicago's communities, had large numbers of factories. So Puerto Ricans came to work wherever there were factories. So you will see in the 50s and 60s pockets of Puerto Rican communities throughout Chicago. There would be one in Uptown, another in Lakeview, another in Lincoln Park. There would be a sizable Puerto Rican community in Southeast Chicago along uh, Commercial and 87th. We had a Puerto Rican community around Madison and Harrison, all the way from Western to Pulaski. So 
there were all the packages. But what is important, at least in this conversation, is how Humble Park has been the longest uh, community uh, of Puerto Ricans in Chicago. So we're celebrating probably over 70 years of Puerto Rican presence and persistence in the city. Um, and what do you think Humboldt Park provides for the rest of Chicago? Well, I think as a community, we began our community organizing effort within the context of community building. I think there's a big difference between community organizing and community building, even though they should be intertwined. When we're involved in community organizing, we usually do it around single-issue politics. And that's great, and that's wonderful, but it doesn't build community. For us, when we began our work in the, in the late 60s, following the Puerto Rican riot of 1966, some people began to obviously organize and do community organizing. One of those people was my brother, Oscar Lopez Rivera, in 1967, uh, right after he came back from Vietnam. And then I had just graduated from high school in 68. I got involved, went to the university, to Loyola, and continued to be involved in community organizing. But also we felt that we needed to really build our own institutions. So it was, how do we address social issues from the perspective of creating uh, parallel institutions? So for us, it was not just to impact the Chicago public schools and be able to demand bilingual education, bicultural experiences, teachers that look like us, and that the school system would address our uh, needs, but it was also about providing the people in the community with alternatives. And so our first experiment at community building was the uh, creation of a high school for Puerto Rican dropouts, and that school still exists, uh, Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos High School. But more importantly than the building of that high school is the fact that we impacted on the creation of two major institutions in Chicago. So when we talk about how we impacted the rest of the city, we were part of the creation of the Alternative School Network in 1974, and we were part of the creation about 21 years ago of Youth Connection Charter Schools. So ASN is a, um, a network of alternative schools that provides wraparound services to youth who are at risk. The YCCS, the Youth Connection Charter School, is literally one charter that has 23 small schools, which are independent schools. And they address, right now, YCC has about, serves about 4,000 students, primarily African-American and Latino students. So that's just an example of one of the things that we have done that I think impacts on uh, the city as well as, obviously, our community. There's not one time that I don't have a conversation with you, sir, that I don't learn something new. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I'm actually excited to ask the following question. This is one of my favorite questions out of all of these. Why is Humboldt Park important to preserve? It's important to preserve because I, if we go back to the idea of community building, communities must be seen like we see ecosystems. Every community is an ecosystem. All living things and non-living things exist in ecosystems. So if I view a community as an ecosystem, 
then I have to understand that everything that happens in that community that impacts on the lives of people has to be interconnected. And so I think that um, for me, the most important part of a discussion around community building is about thinking about the notion of critical space and place. If we don't look at communities as critical spaces and places, then we miss the very idea not only of intersectionality and interconnectedness, but we also, I think, uh, cannot really grapple with the social, economic, and other issues that impact on the lives of people. And so a community has to be seen as a living organism. An unhealthy community ultimately becomes obviously a place where you will produce and have outcomes that are unhealthy. And so in community buildings, we have to also see that all things in that community have to be not only interconnected, but also have an idea that drives them, that, that, that makes them promote life and the quality of life. So unfortunately, communities don't exist as isolated. They're part of a greater politics and body politics. And that means that many times, particularly certain communities, because of who lives there and perhaps even the social classes that are there, are often marginalized. And that marginalization obviously leads to inequity. And this is what we talked about in terms of Humboldt Park. Humboldt Park has historically been a community that has faced disinvestment, that has faced a process of marginalization. And in many ways, I think that for us, it was important to take hold of this uh, reality and try to do something about the reality, informed by three principles that guide the work of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The self-determination of the Puerto Rican community, the self-actualization of that community, and the self-reliance of that community. Thank you. It's not what I expected, <laughs> but it's a great answer. I, again, I, there's, I learn a lot from you. Um, so you touched a little bit on this already, but um, what is your proudest achievement from your policy legislative efforts? Wow, that's another kind of difficult one. I, I think when, I, when we think about the sort of what we've been able to create in that community, the institutions we've created, I can talk to you about, we talked about Pedro Alviso Campos. We can also talk about the creation of Paseo Boricua as a cultural and commercial enterprise and as a cultural and commercial corridor. And when I, when I look at the fact that we had a huge struggle in 1991 to 1993 in that community to place a statue in Humboldt Park uh, that would honor one of the great figures, a very controversial figure of Puerto Rican history, Pedro Albizu Campos, a black Puerto Rican who was the first Puerto Rican to attend Harvard University and who confronted, uh, obviously, racism while at Harvard, but was a deeply uh, thoughtful and critical figure who returned to Puerto Rico to work among the poor and took up the case of and the cause of Puerto Rican independence. 
We wanted to establish a statue in his honor in 1993 in Humboldt Park. We actually created the statue, and uh, we all had it ready, and the park district decided not uh, to allow us to do that because it was very controversial. Out of the whole struggle to place that statue, we were able to negotiate with the city of Chicago, and we were able to actually erect those flags. Those flags are a $2.5 million project that is obviously a streetscape, but in more importantly, we're demarcating an area that we call Paseo Boricua. Boricua is referencing the ancient name of Puerto Rico. Uh, The Taino people, the indigenous people of Puerto Rico called the island Boriquen. That's where the word Boricua comes, and Puerto Ricans refer to themselves not so much as Puerto Ricans and Puerto Ricanio as much as to Yo Soy Boricua. So that is a very important a part of our identity. So Paso Boricua was created in 1995 when we installed those flags. So when I look at our ability to hopefully uh, capture the imagination of the city of Chicago and establish those flags, erect those flags, and establish Paso Boricua, that is a very important part of what I think um, our work has been. I could also talk about the establishment of the the first and only National Puerto Rican Museum in the United States. It's actually celebrating its 20th anniversary that we began that process. And so this year we also marked not only the 25th year of those flags, the 20th year of the museum, the National Museum of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture. On a health level, we're marking the 15th year of an an initiative which uh, was literally birthed by a young woman in our community, Leonilda Calderon, called Muevete, which promotes, obviously, physical movement among women in the community. So when I look at issues that we've impacted that ultimately have to do with impacting on policy and obviously making uh, resources available to our community, I think those are three amazing Uh, achievements, and we're now obviously in the process of opening. Hopefully uh, next year we would be able to build a building uh, that will house artists in the community, that will provide artists with a live and workspace where artists can live, they can work, and they can sell their artwork. And this will provide 24 apartments, and in there we will also house a very, very important community institution, Urban Theater Company, which is the only uh, Puerto Rican-focused theater company in Chicago, and it will be its home, uh, that uh, building, and Urban Theater is also celebrating its 15th year this year. That's awesome. How do you teach others on working effectively in policy and legislative reform? First and foremost, I think when we talk about policy and legislative reform, 
We have to talk about the people we elect. And for me, one of the interesting things about the work that we've done politically in our community has been that I think we've got a group of policymakers and legislatures who are products of our community. So when we elected Luis Gutierrez as our congressman in 1992, Luis Gutierrez was a teacher in our high school. Luis Gutierrez comes out of the struggles at Northeastern Illinois University to create a space at Northeastern for Latino students and has made Northeastern today the school with the highest percentage of Latino in higher education anywhere in, in Chicago. When we look at our aldermen, particularly our ex-alderman Billy Ocasio, comes out of the work of our community, comes out of struggles of housing in the, in the community, housing initiative, Lucha, in educational aspira, but we also can have, um, we can also talk about our present alderman, uh, Roberto Maldonado, who has been a fixture in terms of providing leadership in business uh, work. He is he was a, a businessman before he became a alderman. Uh, he has been one of the most important forces in Chicago uh, advocating um, against gentrification. I we can talk to you about our our senators and our state legislators. I think what we have to do as communities make sure that the people that we elect are people that are deeply rooted and committed to communities. That's the most important thing. But I also think that we as a community have to be able to do the dirty work that sometimes involves making sure that these elected officials get elected. And in addition to that, I think we got to get away from the practice of um, encouraging, I think sometimes uh, even non-for-profits do it, encouraging our elected officials to get involved in issues that are not healthy in terms of political practice. And what I mean by that is that I think when you begin to ask elected officials for jobs, for um, uh, things that benefit individuals and that benefit contracts and that benefit corporations, we've got a problem. That is what leads to corruption. But when an elected official is committed to a community, to the transformation of community, to providing services, to providing what people need, that to me is the kind of politics that we should be advocating. Um, how do you ensure that there is health equity considered in all policies at the community, city, and state level? I began with the idea a little while ago about looking at a community as a healthy ecosystem. We've got to make sure that we look at, at health, not from the vantage point of individual health issues and challenges, but to look at each individual who has a health challenge against the sort of backdrop of what causes those illnesses. So we have a horrible challenge in our community in Humboldt Park around asthma, around diabetes, around HIV AIDS, around PTSD. All of the indicators are that we have some of the worst challenges in the city in terms of those health issues. 
but they're ultimately rooted in health inequities because they're rooted in the marginalization of our community, not only in the context of the marginalization of the Puerto Rican community in Chicago based on a history of disinvestment and other elements, and as well as not caring because um, for many years, uh, I remember as a little boy, if you went into any of the hospitals that serve the Humboldt Park area, and there were five of them, there was Lutheran Deacons, which no longer exist, St. Mary's, St. Um, Elizabeth, there was Norwegian American, and Walter Hospital. If you went and you were a Puerto Rican to get service, medical service in those hospitals, you were turned away because those hospitals were built for the white ethnic group which who had built that hospital. Norwegian was obviously for the Scandinavians. Um, uh, Walter was for the Germans. Uh, Lutheran Deacons was for the Germans. St. Mary's was for the Poles. So we were marginalized from those services. You were sent to Cook County. Now, if you had lived here in the late 50s and early 60s and you were sent to Cook County, you literally were there to face death because not that the, the doctors were not good there, not that the nurses, it was the overcapacity of those of that hospital to handle the situation of Chicago, particularly of the African-American and the Latino community, who were the ones who were the most marginalized. So when we talk about those exclusions, right, in terms of where we were at and obviously speak about health care and health equity, there's a long history here of, of people who are marginalized by the institutions, but also who don't have the resources. But more importantly, in the case of Puerto Ricans, I can show you, I believe, that if we do an epigenetic study of Puerto Ricans, we would find that Puerto Ricans begin to face a serious problem of diabetes dating back to the 1930s. Why the 1930s? Well, then you have to ask what happened in the 1930s in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was taken, was militarily occupied by the United States in 1898. By 1930, Puerto Rico had become a monoculture sugar economy in which four U.S. corporations, four U.S. emporiums control the island's economy. As you have a debacle in as a result of the Depression, Puerto Rico becomes um, what later on would be written in a book called The Stricken Land, an amazing level of poverty, of hunger, anything that you could imagine, uh, high levels of tuberculosis. You find an island that is because of the unnatural causes. And I'm going to point out, because the Puerto Rican economy was totally transformed. An economy that produced what people were consuming to an economy in which people produced what they did not consume and consume what they did not produce. This is the economy of much of Latin America, by the way. But in the case of Puerto Rico, it became very poignant because Puerto Ricans had no control over the island's economy. We still don't. So given that situation, 
In the 1930s, the U.S. begins to import to Puerto Rico large quantities of processed foods. So you bring in processed flour, processed meats, processed everything. You ended up by Puerto Ricans transforming those processed foods into delicacies. So if today you go to Puerto, into a Puerto Rican household and they serve you arroz con corned beef, you're eating a wonderful dish because corned beef is the canned corned beef. Puerto Ricans obviously make it taste delicious, but at the end it's processed meat. And you're eating processed rice. When we used to eat rice that was grown in Puerto Rico, you eat arroz con salchicha. These are the little Vienna sausages that come in a can, which are also processed. Again, processed foods. That turns, Puerto Ricans turn those foods that are processed into delicacies. And that inform our diet. But it doesn't stay there. By the night, late 1950s and early 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, we have the largest concentration of fast foods on the island of Puerto Rico. If you travel to Puerto Rico today, all you have to do is look at the pictures that are coming out of Puerto Rico with this earthquake, and you'll see Kentucky Fried Chicken, you'll see Church's Fried Chicken, you see McDonald's everywhere. Puerto Rico has the highest concentration of fast foods per square mile than any other area in the world. What have we done? Over 90-some years, we have transformed the diet of the Puerto Ricans. That is what makes uh, diabetes so prevalent in Puerto Rico. You have transformed. These are the unnatural causes of those uh, health issues that Puerto Ricans confront. So we're going to switch gears now a little bit. I, some of these questions you've already touched on, uh, but I'm, I'm still going to ask. Um, how can we ensure that everyone, including longtime and newer residents, benefit from the increased investment in the community? So this is a very interesting question. Um, part of the problem here is how do we measure investments? And if investments are made to benefit a community that's already there, that's wonderful. But if you're investing in order for you to bring people to that community, to displace the people that are there, that's problematic. So let's call this process by its name. Gentrification is nothing more than a process of spatial deconcentration. And if there's anything that I've learned about one of the dynamics of colonialism in the world is that everywhere where you have a colonial enterprise, it has always been accompanied by spatial, spatially deconcentrating the native people. Think about it. Think about the expansion of the United States as a country in which you expel and you spatially deconcentrated the native people. And if we look anywhere in the world, I don't care, give me any example where colonialism has penetrated as an enterprise, and I will show you how people are spatially deconcentrated. And I will show you that much of what's happening in the world today, 
whether it's in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Latin America, with the whole so-called immigrant crisis, is all fueled by colonial practices. That's one of the elements of colonialism. So let's call it by its name. And for me, gentrification is not about development. It is about the underdevelopment of the natives and the development of the newcomers. That's what history has taught us. If anything we could learn from the last 500 years is that Europe developed at the expense of the rest of the world. You underdeveloped the rest of the world so Europe could be developed. That's the only thing that we can attribute to, to the whole idea of the so-called European miracle. And then if we look at the settler states, like the United States, Canada, Australia, we're looking at the same dynamics. All right, so that said, when we talk about gentrification and the displacement of people of color in Chicago, that is what I'm referring to, spatial deconcentration. So when we talk about progress, I, I, I love to use this example. When you get from division, undivision, division street, uh, historically Puerto Ricans reference it as La Division. The Puerto Rican community in 1966, when, I, when we, that first riot or first rebellion takes place, was from literally um, that strip of division went from where um, the Kennedy Expressway is today all the way to Costner. That's nearly three miles. That was the Puerto Rican community of La Division. That has been reduced now to where Western is the frontier. So I ask people, in the last uh, aldermanic election, uh, two people ran against the alderman, and we had a community forum, and I asked the two opponents of the alderman, they said, there is no development on this side of Division Street from Western um, on. The development is from Western to Ashland and beyond. I said, okay, let's talk about this. How many businesses exist between those two flags? From Mozart to Western. No one could answer. I said, what if I was told you there were at least 50 businesses there? How many people do these businesses hire? No one knew over 300 people. Now let's take who owns those businesses. Do you have 50, almost 50 businesses that are owned by the people in who live here and who work here and actually have made this community. Those people that work there live and work in this community. Now, I go to the area between, let's say, let's just, cut it down to Ashland and Western. The businesses that are there are all owned by major corporations. There are very few businesses that are owned by people that live and work in the community. But when, what you, when you go in those restaurants, when you go into those businesses, where do you find our people? The Latinos are either the cooks the ones that prepare um, the food or the dishwashers. On the other hand, 
the ones who serve the food, the ones that actually are the bartenders, are not Latinos. There's something wrong with that picture. So when you talk to me about development, let's take about these two sides of Division Street that is divided by Western. So for me, when we talk about development, is how does that development really benefit the people who are there? If it doesn't, it's problematic for me. Now, the other side of this is, can we tell people where to live? No, I don't believe anyone can be told where to live. As human beings, um, one of the things that makes the human experience so great is our ability to travel this whole world. We began in Africa and we travel through all the continents. And today we inhabit all the continents. And it is through that process of migration that we become hopefully better human beings, that we've developed, that we've actually flourished with all of the limitations that we have as human beings. So that said, obviously I'm a strong believer in people being able to live wherever they want. However, whenever you enter a community of people, and I'm saying a community of people, be it in a city or be it in another country, you should enter that community with a deep sense of humility. And that is that I will become a world traveler. And as a world traveler, I want to know what are the wondrous production of those people. So if I was to travel to Bangkok, I should choose to be a world traveler and not a tourist. The tourists will stay at the Marriott, at the Hiltons in Bangkok, but will never explore 7,000 years of Thai history. One of the oldest civilizations on earth, you will totally ignore it because you're there to meet your own needs and not to be at wonderment with the people that you experience. And if I was to experience Bangkok, I want to experience it from the vantage point of a humble human being who is at awe with 7,000 years of Thai history. And that's what I expect from the newcomers in our community. They should be at awe with what we have and then say, how can I be part, be part of this process in a way that that informs me as someone who is in solidarity with you and not to move you away or to displace you. My God, you just blew me away. <laughs> you really did. You've done a lot of work in defending Humble Park, which, you again, you've touched on. From gentrification, what, in your opinion, is the best version of Humble Park for its residents? A few years ago, we did a survey, not very scientific, but it was done in various places in the community. And we came up with an interesting observation. That was 80% of close to 500 people that had been interviewed said Humble Park is home, Humble Park is meaning, Humble Park is culture. 80%. Now, one of the interesting things is a few years ago, the king of a little kingdom in the Himalayas, Bhutan, 
the king of Bhutan made a challenge to the world. And he says, instead of us measuring people's progress by how much they own, why don't we begin to measure people's progress on how happy they are? You see, happiness as a measurement. Imagine if we're happy, we wouldn't have mental illness. The happiest people on earth are the original people everywhere. When Columbus arrived on the island of Española, which was really the island of Quisqueya in Haiti, he found the Tainos and he writes in his journal that he was deeply amazed and impacted by how these people were constantly laughing and singing. These were happy people. They impacted Columbus. Yet Columbus, the first thing he saw in the Cacique Guacanagari was a golden necklace, a guanin, and that's what he was interested, not in the happiness of those people. And so I think we've got to be able to transform our sense of what makes a community great, and I think part of it is, does the community have meaning? Does the community provide purpose? Does it provide people with a sense of direction? And I think in many ways, Humboldt Park does that. I would agree. Again, some of these questions you've already touched on. How is relationship building important to the work that you do at the local, city, statewide, and federal level? Well, I think, as I said earlier, the idea is there's got to be an organic relationship between a community and its elected officials. If that organic, this does not exist, there's a problem. So that's in terms of relationship building on the various levels of government, right? But there's another relationship which is on the level of communities themselves. And one of the interesting things that happened on Paseo Boricua many years ago was that we have been the only community, Latino community in the United States that has actually held in sanctuary undocumented women. We, there are four women that have taken sanctuary in a small storefront church on Division Street. Right now we have a Mexican woman named Francisca Lino, the first woman, Elvira Arellano. And to me, one of the things that we had to deal with and to challenge was what did Puerto Ricans think about Mexicans. And to me, one of the problems that we have is that we've been led to believe that Puerto Ricans, because they're citizens, are somehow better than Mexicans or any undocumented. And I think we have to challenge those ideas. My mother used to say, ¿Quién es tu padre? ¿Quién es tu hermano? ¿Es tu vecino más cercano? So in other words, it's not your biological family. It's the people that are closest to you. And I think, obviously, Puerto Ricans have a deep uh, connection to other Latinos historically and otherwise. So for us to have been able to provide sanctuary for four Mexican women, something that no other community can claim, and we're talking about almost 15 years in the making, nowhere do you find a community of immigrants, be it Mexican, Dominicans, anywhere where that has happened. So to me, 
one of the most important elements of being Puerto Rican is ultimately being human. And for me, the most one of the most important definitions of being human is to be in solidarity with my fellow human being. And so that connection is extremely important, and I think we've proven it by the presence of Elvira and now Francisca. Can you give an example at, on how racism is expressed today in education, healthcare, housing, etc.? Okay, so let me try to give you a short answer to a long question. <laughs> so for me, racism does not exist outside of the practice of colonialism. 500 years ago, we invented racism. We invented racism as a justification for the taking of people's lands, resources, and labor, the three elements that define colonial practices. So for me, the first, you cannot understand racism without understanding the development of the first forced labor system on this continent, which was the encomienda. And what was the encomienda? The Spanish conquistadores were given an encomienda. Encomienda comes from the Spanish word encomendar, which means to entrust. So the Spaniards, the conquistadores, were given by the Queen of Spain, Queen Isabella, the right to literally take away the land, the resources, and the labor of native people because they were entrusted with their salvation. What does this mean? You teach them to be good Catholics, and you save their soul. So by saving their soul, you have a right to take their land, their resources, and their labor. This is how racism began. And as a historian, I, I believe I can prove this. Before 1492, there is no real racialized world. After 1492, we begin to create these racial divisions. So racism is rooted in the practice of colonialism. Racism is the justification for colonialism. Okay? So for me, I cannot speak of racism unless I link it to the practice of colonialism. Today, we a lot of people speak about a post-colonial world as they speak about a post-racial world. That is a lie. That is the glossing over historical problem. We have to admit that we have a, a problem, a historical problem of racism and colonialism, and we have to address it. And if we don't, history does not ever, ever repeat itself. That's a lie, because history occurs in time and space, and time and space is constantly changing. What happens in history is that historical problems, like our personal problems, insist on being resolved. And when we don't resolve them, they continue to fester. And so we have a historical problem of racism. We have a historical problem of colonialism. We have to acknowledge it, and we have to take steps to overcome this. Racism cannot be reduced to a question of prejudice. I'm sorry. It's deeper, 
and it's much more profound. Thank you. Um, and our closing question is, how do you ensure the next generation will carry on your work? Well, I just had a wonderful event in November. It was my 70th birthday celebration. I didn't celebrate. People in the community decided to do it. I was really, I marvel at the fact that um, our work has created so many new generations of young people who are taking over the leadership and obviously are leading. We have some wonderful, wonderful young Puerto Rican leaders, mostly women, and I am extremely proud of that fact. Thank you. Um, again, es un honor estar aquí con usted. It's been an honor. Thank you so much, Jose. Gracias, gracias. for listening to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All. Please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more or getting involved in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, visit our website linked in this episode's description. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can contact us at skinnytreespodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at skinnytrees312 or visit our website at skinnytreespodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute of Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the lab of Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views or policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content. I tell people, you know, artificial intelligence can never, ever, I don't believe, outdo a human being. However, because it's all based on algorithms, how can you do, I mean, I have to program a robot. There's no way a robot ultimately can really produce intelligence. I'm sorry, there's no way. Because intelligence is based on the infinite. Who can determine the infinite? So anyhow, and algorithms are based on math, right? Math ultimately ends up in its own contradiction of the infinite. So to the extent that I don't be, but what we're doing is we're becoming slaves to, um, to artificial intelligence. And it's precisely because of that. We're so dependent on that, that everything we get is that. And I said, oh my God, we got a problem. <laughs>